Bibles to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7. We're going to read the first 17 verses. It just in the reading itself, there's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to your heart and touch you with the love of Jesus and just let you know uh, some things about yourself and, and your relationship with Him. And so just be open. Follow along. Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, Behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited His people. And this report about Him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and I pray that we would understand all that we need to know today regarding these two healings, Lord, that uh, we would understand them in general as a congregation, but also specifically as individuals, Lord, in terms of what you would say to us, each and every one of us. We believe your word is alive, powerful, living, and that it can speak beyond the words of any man, of any commentary, and that you can literally speak to each of us. And so do that, we pray, in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The police were asked to check the welfare of someone who hadn't been heard from in several days. When they did, they found him dead. I was trained to wear gloves when dealing with dead bodies. All of us had gloves on, the officers, the coroner, and myself. We were waiting for the funeral home to arrive to transport the body. 
When they arrived, we were all a little startled that they didn't bother to snap on protective gloves when handling the body. To each his own, it was nothing for me to worry about until one of the men from the funeral home recognized me and put forward his hand to shake hands with me. By then, I had removed my gloves. All eyes were on us. What would the chaplain do? Would I back down, refuse to touch the bare, contaminated hand? Or would I show those guys that the Lamore Police Department was not to be so easily intimidated? And you know what? That's what was going on. These funeral guys, they're intimidating. I took his hand, squeezed it, and looked him right in the eye as if to say, bring it on. It was the stuff of legends. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but that's the way it went down. Touching the dead was even more of a problem in the first century, not medically, but religiously. If a Jew touched a dead body, they were considered contaminated and unclean from a religious standpoint. It meant they could not participate in normal religious activities until they went through certain ritual cleansings. Our text says Jesus touched the open coffin. He undoubtedly touched the corpse lying as it was on an open stretcher. When Jesus purposely touched the corpse of the widow's son, it would have blown their minds. It was something that just wasn't done by a law-abiding Jew. This kind of contamination by contact was also present in Jesus' earlier decision to go to the centurion's house. The centurion was a Gentile, and Jews were not allowed to enter the dwellings of Gentiles. If they did, they would be considered contaminated and unclean from a religious standpoint, unable to participate in religious activities. It is one reason why the centurion urged Jesus to keep his distance and not come all the way and go into the house. Jesus was breaking barriers by touching people who were in need. He was giving His disciples an example to follow. We, too, need to be willing to touch people at different levels. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, say the word and you touch the world for Jesus. Number two, show the word and you touch the world for Jesus. Let's begin in verses 1 through 10 where we see that you say the word and touch the world for Jesus. Now, these first few verses would cause you to gasp in the culture of the Bible. Jews just did not enter Gentile homes. It was impolite to even ask. Motivated by love for his servant, the centurion did ask. And to everyone's amazement, Jesus started toward this Gentile home. This was a real dilemma for his apostles. They were committed to follow Jesus. They were called as His special messengers. Would they go in that house with Him? It was no small problem. And I'll bet there was a lot of conversation about it as they walked along. Peter, you going in? If you go in, I'll go in. Now, I'm making that part up, but you know, this is the thing. Uh, This was really unheard of among the Jews. And here was Jesus, sure, lead the way. And and this would have been a real trial for his followers. Now, when he concluded, verse 1, all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him, he was sick and ready to die. 
A Roman centurion was the commander of 100 men. He was a man of considerable power and wealth. This centurion's servant was dear to him. The description reveals a decent, tender heart beating within this career military man. Verse 3, so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. The centurion was a God-fearer. It's a technical term to describe devout Gentiles who respected Judaism but did not become proselytes to their religion. We talk about people being God-fearing, but this was really a, a, a label, a technical term that described Gentiles who accepted and respected Judaism but didn't proselyte. They didn't become proselytes for two reasons. One, they were adults and they didn't want to be circumcised. I can identify with that. And two, they didn't accept the food laws of Judaism. They didn't want to have a restricted diet. By the way, there are no dietary religious laws today. I, I just want to mention that to you. This comes up all the time. People are on different diets and different nutritional things and all that. As far as the Bible is concerned, eat anything you want. Have it to yourself and to God. He's given us all things to enjoy. We're not under any dietary regulation. And in the case of this Gentile, Roman centurion, he didn't want to follow that. And, and so he was as close to being a Jew as you could be without proselyting to their religion. And we're told that he had personally funded the building of their local synagogue. And so he was serious about his support for Judaism even though he was part of the occupying force, he was interested in and a, and, and a believer in the God of Israel, and he had put his money where his mouth is and funded their synagogue. Now, the elders presented their case by claiming the centurion was deserving. He certainly was a good person. He had done good works, and therefore, they concluded he must be deserving of God's help. This is kind of a political way of approaching Jesus because it's, it's already bad enough that they're asking Jesus, a Jew, to come and visit a Gentile. They probably are doing it because they're obligated to this guy who had built their synagogue. And now they're saying, well, how are we going to get Jesus to come? What if he doesn't want to come because he's a devout Jew? We have to prove how deserving this man is. By the way, God is not in debt to people for their good works. The truth is we are all undeserving no matter our good works. By His grace, God gives us what we do not deserve. Jesus didn't argue this doctrinal point. You need to decide what hills you want to defend sometimes. He didn't have a big conversation with the Jews about, you know, why Gentiles and Jews didn't get along or how He was going to break down barriers or how He wasn't good enough to really deserve anything. He knew something greater, something bigger was going on. You know, a lot of times we, we I don't want to say waste, but we spend our times arguing about things that are just not important. They're just not the key issues. They're just not the essential thing. And, and we, we, we draw battle lines with other Christians. And then these huge areas, we let go. We, we just say, oh, well, that's okay. That's no big deal. Just pick and choose your battles. Make sure that you know what you're talking about. And uh, a lot, there's a lot of things that you can let slide. Sometimes you do have to take a stand. 
In this case, Jesus simply went. He had a lesson to teach His disciples. He knew something was happening. His Father in heaven sent Him. And so, verse 6, then Jesus went with them, and when He was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to Him, saying to Him, Lord, do not trouble Yourself, for I am not worthy that You should enter under My roof. We cannot overemphasize the decision to go to the centurion's house. It was huge. It was part of the reason that the centurion sent friends telling Jesus to not enter under his roof. His servant whom he cared for was sick. He knew about Jesus. He knew Jesus had the power to heal disease and sickness. And so, in his, uh, in his care and concern, he sent for Jesus. And then while he was waiting... He started to think about what that really meant. He had asked Jesus, a, a, a rabbi, a teacher, a Jewish teacher, to come into his house and perform a ministry, and it began to weigh on him. And, and, and as much as he wanted his servant healed and made whole, he knew that he had overstepped his boundaries. And so he sent and said, I, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. But he said in verse 7, therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion, a career military officer, understood delegated authority. He probably had a view of the coming Messiah that were, was similar to the view of the Jews that he was connected to. And we've seen in Scripture many times that the first century Jew believed the Messiah would come, conquer Rome, and set up a kingdom of heaven on earth, the kingdom of God on earth. And if you're thinking that through, if you're an oppressed people under the the iron foot of the Roman Empire, and expecting your Messiah to come, well, you're looking for a military savior. You're looking for a military man, somebody who's going to command armies and throw off Roman oppression. And so this is really kind of interesting when you stop and think about it. It's a whole separate meditation for you. Because if, this, if Jesus was the Messiah, and if it was this kind of a military confrontation, then the Roman centurion would be a combatant in that confrontation. He would have to decide if he was going to fight for Rome against that person or lay down his arms and join that person. A very, there's a lot of really intense emotional, psychological drama going on in this situation. For his part, he may have understood that the Messiah was a military man, but one who also battled death and demons and disease with supernatural forces at his command. And so he's appealing to Jesus, who isn't quite yet in command of an army that you can see, to come and command the forces that he can't see and to speak with authority to them. One of the lessons here is that we tend to view Jesus through our own life experiences. He was a career military man, and so he thought about Jesus and how he healed, and he thought, well, he must do it through delegated authority because that's how I would do it. And so we, we, it's just 
important, I think, to tuck away in the back of your mind this understanding that we sometimes uh, limit ourselves by our own experiences. And this is one of the great things about the church of Jesus Christ. When you're part of the church, when you come into a local church, a local assembly, you're getting connected with people who you normally would probably not have relationships with. We have a tendency, especially before we're Christians, to hang out with people that we like and that have similar interests to us. We join groups and societies, and, and we do things with other people that, that we like. Very, very rare that the person says, well, I'm going I'm to branch out and go around people that I don't like, or even other ethnic groups. We have a lot of prejudices, and there's, there's kind of a, a limiting factor in our lives where we just, uh, you know, I don't have to be with people I don't like. I don't have to do things I don't like, and so I'm just going to hang with this group of people. And then you become a Christian, you come into the church, and oftentimes you, you see people that you don't like. You work with, I didn't know you were a Christian. Oh, man, is there no other church I can go to? <laughs> people from all walks of life, from every strat. Sometimes it's difficult, and not to pick on one profession, but it's been difficult over the years. Sometimes there are officers from the Navy who are here fellowshipping with enlisted men big taboo, and yet they have to work through that. And there's people from ethnic groups that even though none of us like to admit that we're prejudiced, many times we don't find ourselves mixing with other ethnicities here in Hanford. We have certain parochial groups in Hanford that get together and have their own festivities and stuff, and we don't have that cross-cultural communication. And so the church is a wonderful place to blow out your normal experiences and to see things through other people's eyes. And, and I think it gives you a whole new appreciation for the Scripture because you're able to gain and glean from people that you normally wouldn't be around. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's also good to have your own experiences because just like this soldier was able to put the gospel into terms that he understood as a soldier, I think God speaks to us in our walk of life through our experiences, gives us illustrations, pictures, metaphors, similes, if we're open to seeing what's happening around us. Whatever your job is, whatever you're busy doing, God can whisper by His Holy Spirit to your heart and give you these pictures if you're open to it during the day. And, and, and uh, you know, a lot of times, certainly, yeah, God speaks to us through His Word, and anything else He might say, quote-unquote, has to be tested by His Word. But Jesus, you remember, Jesus is out in the countryside, and He'd say, you know, uh, the Word of God is like a sower sowing a field, and everybody would look over, and, oh, yeah, there's a guy out there spreading seed, and He would see some of that seeds fell on the rocks and on the pathway and all, and he would use what he was looking at. Or he'd be walking along and say, you know, following me is like being yoked like these oxen over here. And, and, and he could draw from his everyday experience, and we can as well. If we, and, and I urge you, I encourage you, I challenge you to open up your, your eyes and heart spiritually and say, Lord, show me something today. Speak to me through the normal everyday activities of my life. Give me a spiritual picture you know, in, in what I'm doing with my hands or, or the work that you've called me to. And he'll do it. 
Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, man, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. And that's where it says, I say to you in the King James, it's really, man, it's not really in the language. But, you know, sometimes we have to see Jesus as being more human because he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And, and, you know, we read this and we think the crowd followed him and he's, excuse me, I say to you, <laughs> I have not found such great faith and all this. And, you know, I'm thinking if, if this was me and if it was you, how would you react? I mean, Jesus was a man. And how would you, I would go, whoa, man, this is happening. And uh, so, you know, this is the equivalent of that in his language. But, I mean, this, it, it literally blew Jesus' mind uh, you know, it says that he marveled, and the word is amazed, and we would say he was mind-blown. It was just amazing to him what was going on, and so I think he shared it with that kind of joy. And then in verse 10, it says, all those who, uh, and those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. You know, this servant was awfully fortunate to be associated with the centurion's household. It brought him into contact with faith that wrought a miracle in his life. And just a reminder, it's good to be connected to God's household of faith. It's good for people to have a church that they attend and, and a group of believers that, that they are uh, responsible to and accountable to. A lot of people, I feel sorry for a lot of people who contact churches. We get telephone calls uh, all the time, and, and we do our best to try and help everyone we can help. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of times, we get calls from people who are just going through the phone book. They're letting their fingers do the walking. You know, they have some need in their life, and, and it's usually a financial need. That's the immediate need, a financial need. And they, they open the phone book, and they start with churches. And since there's no Amco church, you know, or, you know, Acme Church Services or something. I mean, you, you get to the sea pretty quickly, you know, Calvary Chapel, and they call, and where do you go to church? Don't go to church. I went to church as a little girl, or I did this, or I did this. And, you know, my heart breaks because if they had just been going to church somewhere, either here or somewhere else, they might not even be in the situation that they're in, or if they were, people would already be rallying around them to help them and to get them through it because their problem really isn't even financial. Oh, sure, they need money for the rent or, or food or whatever, but it's, that's not really the problem. The problem is something else, something emotional, something spiritual that's going on in their life. And... Um, it, it's a good thing to be associated with God's people. You know, sadly, there's a, there's a large community of people. I say community, it's really the wrong word because they're not really together, but just a, a lot of people, Christians, who just aren't associated with any church. They're burned out on the church or they don't like the church or the church burned them out or something like that, and they're just kind of floating around as Christians. And, and they're Christians, don't get me wrong, I'm not, that's great, but they need to be connected to the body of Christ. They need to be where other Christians are. They have something to bring, something to offer, some gift or talent. Or be, you know, all the gifts of the Spirit, they're to serve other people. They're not for you. And so if you're not with other people, what are you doing with the gift that God gave you? Lord, thank you for this gift. It's so beautiful. I'm just going to put it in my closet now. I'll look at it tomorrow. 
And, and it sounds silly, but that's the truth. And, and so if you know anybody who's a Christian, they're just floating out there, encourage them to get into a church. It's a good thing for people to be in church. As far as lessons and applications from this episode, as usual, there are many. The one I am emphasizing involves the willingness of Jesus to touch people. The Lord had just picked His 12 apostles. He had just given them their orientation to discipleship. Now, the very first thing Luke records is the willingness of Jesus to go and enter the house of a Gentile. It would have challenged His followers. As I mentioned, they were expecting the Messiah to overthrow Rome and establish the kingdom of God on earth. The centurion would be a combatant, not a candidate for God's blessing. His willingness, though, put Jesus in a place where He had only to say the word in order to accomplish a great work for God. This combination of willingness and the word is the point of application I want to make. On the one hand, you can be willing to help people. And I think most people are willing to help and wanting to help other people. But unless you're committed to God's Word as the sole source of their help, as containing all things that pertain to life and godliness, then you can't help anybody, not in a lasting way, not in an eternal way. The world is full of people who want to help people. Only weird people don't want to help other people. Only psychopathic people and sadistic people. I mean, the average person on the street wants to help other people. And they're working hard to do that in their own way. Ultimately, the, the help that people need is spiritual. They need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Nothing else you do to help a person is of any real value or consequence when viewed from eternity standpoint. You could make a person's life fantastic, but if they die and don't know Christ, what does it gain them? And so, you need to be willing and use God's Word. On the other hand, you can be committed to God's Word, but if you're not willing to go wherever God might send you, then it's not going to do anyone else much good. Now, this involves two things. Am I willing to actually go where God sends me? And, and this is a challenge for some people. Oh, no, I'm comfortable here. I like it here. Please, Lord, don't ask me to do that. But it can also be in, in kind of a, a different way. It could be that you're not comfortable and happy or content where God has put you, and you're always thinking about going somewhere else, having some greater ministry, having some gift that you don't really have, and you miss the opportunities to help people along the way. You give up on those opportunities because you're always looking towards something that God hasn't called you to do or to be. And this is a very personal thing. It's, it's something that you'll have to pray about and have the Holy Spirit apply to your own heart and life. Am I willing and do I use God's Word? And the answer, when the answer to those questions is yes, then you'll find yourself saying the word in a way that will help people. Now, this second episode in our text involves both, involves, excuse me, the direct touch on the part of Jesus, show the word, and you touch the world for Jesus. A crowd was entering Nain. They were joyous, laughing, and excited as they followed Jesus. A crowd was exiting Nain. They were grieving, weeping, hopeless. Verse 11, now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. 
And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. Here was a wife who had lost her husband to death, a widow. Now she had lost her only son as well. Someone described the death of a child before the parent as putting a period before the end of a sentence. Besides the torrent of grief, there would be a flood of fear. Who would care for her? Who would provide for her? What was she to do in a society where women really didn't work and and were looking to men to protect and provide for them? The large crowd reminds us of their funeral customs. The corpse would be carried on an open stretcher through the city streets. Family and friends would follow, mourning loudly. But others would join the procession as it wove through the streets until a large crowd was following the deceased outside the city gates. The equivalent of it in our culture would be that if you're driving down Dowdy and you see the hearse go by and the cars following, that you would just pull in behind. And every car would just start pulling in behind until you had this huge procession out to the Grangeville Cemetery. Hundreds and hundreds of cars, strangers who really didn't know. Of course, in their culture, small towns, they probably all knew each other. Oh, hey, wait a minute. We are in a small town where everybody knows each other. And uh, so that would be, it'd be like, you know, you're on your way to the market, and you're like, oh, funeral, got to pull over and join the funeral. And everybody, and, and then you could be mourning and wailing in your car. Ah! You know, like that and stuff. Okay, have you entered into this? I'm trying to make this a multi-sensory experience this morning. You know, I really missed an opportunity if I really wanted to be, like, cool this morning, because that's the big thing in church is multi-sensory, like, you know, storytelling kind of stuff. I, I was going to get a bunch of gloves, you know, when I told that story at the beginning and have everybody snap on a glove. <laughs> and then you'd never forget that point. If you really want to get into it, I could have brought a coffin in. See, there's no limit to the s- things that people could do. But anyway... I had another word for it, but it starts with S and ends with stupidity. But uh, anyway, (laughs) verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, don't cry. Now, we have a tendency to speak with cliches. Don't cry. He said, don't weep, but we would say, don't cry. That's one of them, unless it's Jesus saying it. I think Jesus is the only person that could go up to this woman and say, don't cry, He could tell this widow, this grieving mother, to not weep because he knew that in a moment her son would be restored to her. If you want to tell somebody who's grieving, don't cry, or anything else like that, then it has to be in light of a future hope in the resurrection from the dead that you've explained to them. It can't be based on things like time heals all wounds, or you'll get over it, or Tomorrow will be a better day. The worst cliche I've ever heard, and this is, this is a true thing that people say, death of a child, and you look at the person and say, well, at least you have other children. Gosh, I forgot about that. What am I thinking? Why be sorry when I've got some other kids that I can worry about now? Hey, would you finish the funeral for me? I got to go shopping. I mean, what do you think when you say something like that? It's crazy. And so avoid cliches. Don't say anything if you can't say something meaningful. I, I bite my lip all the time because you think I should say something and, you know, Lord, the Lord is saying, I haven't given you anything to say. 
just be there. There is a ministry of presence in people's lives without saying things that spoils it. Compassion motivated Jesus. It's been defined as your pain in my heart. One anonymous poet remarked, in every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. The words had compassion describe a visceral reaction. That's a physical as well as emotional reaction. Every chance I get, I use the word visceral. There are great words that just really are powerful. How are you? I'm having a very visceral day. See, it doesn't fit. I mean, there are only certain times that you can use it, but when it's there, it's just powerful. Just trying to help you with your, you know, language and stuff. It's kind of like a little verbal advantage course. Our word today is visceral. But it mean, Jesus, he had a physical reaction. He was touched in a deep personal way by this grief. He is just as moved with compassion over you for your sorrows and sufferings. Verse 14, then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. And I, I don't think he yelled at him. Now, see, we have this idea, you know, that, you know, I, I think in movies, you know, movies can't really portray things because they're dull. When they, I think a lot of things that happened seemed dull but on the movie. So you want to show that Jesus has the power of life over death, and so he'd come walking up. Young man! Arise! Well, Jesus is just talking to the corpse. He says, hey, buddy, get up. Now, he may not have whispered, but he didn't make a big deal about it. He says, young man, arise. Very matter of fact, very straightforward. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak. I'd love to know what he said. Hey, Lord, how you doing? It's cool down there in paradise. I mean, what do you say? You don't want to even come back, and you're there, you know, and the Lord's speaking to you and say, oh, Lord, can't you just leave me alone? I was so happy. <laughs> Carmen had a song like that years ago. Who even knows who Carmen is? Anybody? It's a man for one thing, but anyway. <laughs> Not the opera, Carmen, but there's a, there's a Christian artist, Carmen, and, and uh he had a song about Lazarus who Jesus spoke to, and Lazarus is hanging around with Adam and Abraham and stuff, and Jesus is, Lazarus, come forth, you know, and it's, it's pretty cool if you're like 50 years old. But anyway, he who was dead sat up, began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Touching the open coffin was the same as touching the corpse. I think he probably did touch the body itself, but, you know, it, it's, you come into contact with death. You simply did not touch the dead. His apostles and disciples would be wondering, what did we get ourselves into? First, we're going to the houses of Gentiles. Now, we're going around poking dead bodies. Well, what they had gotten themselves into was the power to raise the dead. No one had been resurrected in about 900 years. With a touch and a word from Jesus, he was alive. He sat up and began to speak. I want to mention that the people Jesus raised from the dead have no words recorded in Scripture. Whatever beyond and back, white light at the end of the tunnel experience they had remains untold. We don't need the accounts of people who are clinically dead to show there is life after death. Now, don't get me wrong. People have these out-of-body death experiences. You know, they, they hover over their bodies. They see things written on the backside of the, you know, 
uh, light fixture and that no one knows is there, and they hear things, that, and then they come back into their bodies, and they see lights, and they go to hell and come back, and they go to heaven and come back. I mean, they have those experiences, but nobody ever talked about it in the Scripture, and so I think people should... The only person I would really believe that had a genuine experience, somebody who wouldn't talk about it, because that's what Paul the Apostle, he said, he said, man, I, I think I went to heaven, not even say it was me, but I, I, it was me. Uh, I can't say a word about it, though, because it's too glorious. And so these experiences are real, but I just don't know what they are. Uh, and, and the bottom line is, they're interesting, they're exciting. I always, you know, we watch those things on TV, Ooh, wow, freaky, you know. I'm tired of watching the medical channel where people are getting sliced and hacked and stuff, so let's watch this for a while. And, uh, you know, and, and all, but we don't need that. It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove anything. Now, the young man was resurrected and then reunited with his mom. Isn't that one of the joys of the future resurrection? You're going to be reunited with your believing loved ones. And that's why we sorrow at their death, but not as those without hope. I've told you before, and it's true, Another cliche-type expression we use, you know, we say, well, uh, you know, I'm sorry that you lost your husband when someone dies or you lost your son or whatever. And if you're really wanting to, you know, get it into a more of a Christ-like attitude, you say, well, I haven't lost them. I know exactly where they are. They're in heaven with the Lord, and I'm going to be there too. And so you never really lose anybody that knows the Lord. And then in verse 16, fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us. God has visited His people, and this report about Him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Even then, they had sound bites. That's what these are. These are sound bites. This amazing thing had taken place, and people say, hey, what happened out there at the gates of Nain? A great prophet has risen among us. Or, you know, you'd be walking through town and there'd be a bumper sticker saying, God has visited his people. Well, they, I don't know if they had bumper stickers, but, you know, they, they could write, you know, they weren't cavemen. Oh, name, oh. You know, it wasn't like that. These are intelligent people. Anyway, they had sound bites, and that's what this is. This is a, it's a condensation, con, yeah, condensation. It's a, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right, condensation, is that right? No, it, condensed. Thank you. That's why I've sent you to college. exactly why I'm sending him to college, so that he can do that. I went to college, but it was, he's sober, and that makes a big difference, believe me. So anyway, what would Jesus do was a kind of a Christian soundbite, remember that? Not bad, I'm not against stuff like that, but our, our sound bites get overused. They start strong and then they trivialize something great. And so we want to use them sparingly and not overuse them. And so just, just be careful about that. Um, compare these two healings. I can get just as serious as you want. So let's. One involved means the touching of the corpse, the other involved no means at all. Jesus did it from a distance. We don't even know the word. He said to accomplish it. In one case, Jesus was asked to heal. In the other, he was not asked. He simply intervened on his own. There is no pattern or formula to discover with regard to divine healing. It is all at God's discretion. 
We pray for his leading case by case, boldly ask him to heal, and then wait and receive his sufficient grace for the answer, whether it's yes or no. In healing the centurion's servant, Jesus had only to say the word. Here he showed the word. He gave it an action by touching the corpse. There are many ways to touch someone with the life of God. They may or may not be physical in one sense. I mean, you don't always have to grab somebody. It doesn't always involve personal human touch, but you can call somebody or send them a card or show them consideration or kindness in many different ways. If you are moved with compassion, you'll be directed by God how to touch them. If you're going to touch people, it's going to have to be like Jesus. It will be gentle and merciful and tender. It can't ever be by manipulation or coercion or things like that. It has to be in a way that shows them the love of God and that reveals to them the power of a resurrected life. Looking back over these two episodes, you realize that there were two servants in the first and two sons in the second. The centurion's servant was sick unto death. Jesus was God's servant. He would take upon Himself the sickness of sin and die that by Him we might, who ask, be healed spiritually. And so the centurion's servant was sick, but it was only because God's servant would take upon Him that sickness of sin that He could be healed. The widow's son was dead but would be made alive. Jesus was God's son, alive but he would be made dead, destined to die so that we all could live forever. We pointed out also that there were two crowds at Nain, one entering the city, one exiting. One was celebrating life with Jesus, the other grieving for a lifeless corpse. It's a chance to ask, which crowd am I in? Are you following Jesus into the city whose builder and maker is God? Or are you, as the Bible says, dead in trespasses and sins, a living corpse because you do not have eternal life? Let's pray together. Father, as always, Your Word has come to us with the Holy Spirit and His power. Not my words, Lord, Your Word, as we've listened to it, as it's done its work, Lord, of proving us and measuring us, encouraging and exhorting us, and all the other things that it is capable of doing in Your very wonderful hands. And I pray, Lord, that we would remember in our spirit many, many lessons from this morning, and that having been here, opening up our hearts to sing to You and then to hear from You, we would be a little bit more like Jesus. He promised, Lord, that you had predestined us to be like your son and uh, that you would complete the work that you began in us and that one day we would awaken your likeness and we want to be seeing that happen every day, a little bit at a time. And I pray that today would be a big boost, Lord, in that direction. And Jesus, I pray for those who are in difficult circumstances this morning, whether they're emotional or financial, uh, whatever they might be, physical, that we would know that you are our Savior and Deliverer, 
and that we would uh, have joy in them. And Lord, if there are people here who don't know you as their Savior, I pray that they could come forward and talk with the deacons, Lord, and uh, pray a prayer to receive Jesus Christ. That they would know that the crowd that they're in is heading out to the cemetery rather than to the city whose builder and maker is God. Commit these things to you as our faithful creator, our loving heavenly father, our beautiful savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We're gonna sing a last chorus just to cement these things in our heart.